Who remembers the game Shoots and Ladders? Anybody? Everybody? Yeah, if you don't, that probably means you don't have kids that are young anymore. Super simple game. Anybody, everybody remember the concept? Just a grid of a hundred spaces and you spin a wheel and, and you move one space at a time. You know, so it's a total game of luck. But uh, there's the ladders and the slides. And if you, that's the only thing that adds real suspense to the game. That's the only thing that keeps it from being just a, whoever rolls the biggest rolls wins. You know, because if you land on that nasty spot, you know, you shoot all the way back down the, down the thing. Or if you land on a good one, you get to progress skipping several rows up the grid. Um, I have young kids, so this is a game we play often, uh, which is fun. But advancement's completely random, and yet if you hit in the wrong spot, the whole game changes. I studied this passage this week that we're diving into. The next section of David's life, we're starting into the fourth epic of David's life, where once again, everything in in David's uh, life and character and emotional makeup changes again. Once again, never to be the same. Uh, the rest of his life is, is spent kind of bearing out this epic. And so it's a big one in his life. And it's not a fun one, but it's, uh, it's an important one. It's a powerful one. But I, as I was studying it, I was blown away by how good of a metaphor shoots and ladders is for life. You know, we all just kind of drag ourselves along day by day doing the normal thing and progressing hopefully through life and doing well until we hit one of those shoots and everything just seems to tumble backwards again. I was studying David's life and at this point in his life, he's moving along really well. He's become the king. He's, he's, uh, he has everything that was prophesied about him. Um, once he becomes king, he even gets kind of a further prophecy that he's going to be have an eternal heir on the throne. Like his life has been up and to the right since the day Saul died until he hits a shoot. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And like us, when he hits it, he loses a lot of hard-earned progress. Um, as I was reflecting on this kind of children's board game this week, because I was studying David's life, I researched the game a little bit. Who's got a guess on how old Shoots and Ladders is? Anybody? What's that? It, the, the actual game titled Shoots and Ladders came to America in 1943. Uh, Milton Bradley, is that who it was? Yeah, Milton Bradley brought it to America in 1943. It was a game uh, in England long before that called, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, snakes and ladders instead of slides that had little snakes snakes and ladders or one company called it adders and ladders which is a way better marketing name Um, but they brought it from India it had been a game in India called uh, Maksha Patam um, and it dates back the oldest board we found um, dates back to the second century Um, so this is an old board game and the weird thing is as I was reflecting on it being this great metaphor for life you know uh, I, I downloaded a picture of the game. Um, I was going to put it in a thing and I think I forgot. But I downloaded a picture of the game and, uh, and actually I think it was always intended to fit that metaphor because if, does anybody remember the pictures on the game? They've got these little moral pictures like it'll show at the base of a ladder it'll show you planting something and then when you go up the ladder you're carrying vegetables. They're at the top of one of the chutes 
it'll, it shows this little boy pulling his sister's braids. And then when you go to the bottom of the shoot, he's sitting in the corner in a chair. Like it was intended to be. And, and if you go back to its origins in, uh, in uh, India, it was actually a game they used to teach morality that far back. They, they, had, uh, they had a whole, almost their whole faith system was built into it. Vices and virtues and your vices take you up the ladder and your virtues um, bring you down. Well, I give this little game trivia because in our trek through David's life tonight, we hit another shoot. You could almost say that this is the shoot of David's life. It may be the second most well-known story of David behind Goliath. And this is the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, It's an absolute staple for any preacher. So though I don't really intend to pull out anything super original out of it because it's a story we're all really familiar with. Um, and it's just kind of a black and white story. Um, I do want to see if we can't pull some stuff out that we might that we might look at. And honestly, if we are going to pick on sin, I think this is the right one to pick on because you can't you can't really pick on David too much. Primarily because David is probably more harsh on himself than any of us would ever be on him. Sometimes when we look at we like to look at the failures of our Bible characters. We talk about them quite often quite openly uh, and quite often. Um, but the trick to, to that is some of them never even really recognized they were failing. Um, like Moses, we always talk about how he murdered the Egyptian. There's no evidence that Moses felt bad about that. Like it just, he was just afraid of getting caught and persecuted. So he ran. Um, I think he saw that as a just act. Like it, it murdered us, but when we pick on Moses too hard, we're kind of projecting our understanding of murder into that time period. Abraham, you know, when they went into a new city, told Sarah, hey, lie to everybody and tell them you're not my wife because I don't want them to kill me to get to you. And she went along with it. So Abraham was a liar. And, and, but we don't have any evidence that Abraham saw it that way or Sarah even saw it that way. David, not the case. David completely blew it. He completely owned that he blew it. Um, he is very harsh on himself. So David's an easy one to pick on because no matter how hard you pick on David, he picked on himself more. Um, David knew what it meant to own a sin. So all of these kind of characters that we pick on in the scripture, Elijah of soaring faith who got so discouraged he was suicidal, Peter being a coward and and running, um, Paul being a zealot that persecuted Christians, None of those guys give us what it felt like to fail. None of those guys give us what was going on in their heart when they blew it. Um, We just get the story. David's not that way. David kind of opens up his guts so we can see in, which is what makes this such a powerful epic. I feel it's completely acceptable to judge David because he judged himself even more. And not only did David openly um, confess and repent, but he allowed the story to be recorded, first of all, And then he wrote songs and poems about it. Some of the most beautiful songs he wrote were out of this story of his life, out of this epic of his life. So we we literally owe the epic, this epic of David's life, to the fact that he was authentic. He 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 shared this part of his life with us. So this is the text that comes from Second Samuel 11. If uh, if you're following in your own Bible, I'll put it on the screen. This is a little long, but I feel it's important to get um, the full story. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed her purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent David or sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift with Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How can I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so that he, may, he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah the spot close to the city, uh, city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops go so close to the city? Did they not... Di- didn't they know there would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? They then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said. And as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. She became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. First thing I want to do tonight is look at some of the aspects of this story. And first of all, recognize how familiar of a story this is. If ever there was a 3,000 year old story that we could carry straight into 2019 and just drop it on the front page of any news outlet, it's this one. This is every government scandal we've ever heard about. This is sexual misconduct in the workplace. This is... uh, Nathan, who we're going to get into next week, could be WikiLeaks. I mean, this is, this is a, a typical story. You, the, when you study as a preacher, you have to figure out, you know, 
what the original context was. We call it building a bridge to the text and you go over to find out what it means and then you bring back how that applies to us today. We don't have to do this with this story. This applies just like any story you open up your computer and read because this is incredibly contemporary. Very little hermeneutics needs to be done on this passage. This is not a 1000 BC story that we have to find a way to apply to the 21st century. This one just fits. I want to recognize the timeless nature of this story. The second thing I want to do is maybe see if we can draw some wisdom from David's fall. Maybe if we can learn something from what David did, um, it might help us stick to the ladders and avoid the shoots in our own board game. So let's start with the very first verse of the passage. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. So the very first thing in this story is it starts with a broken pattern. It starts with a broken um, rhythm. The story immediately follows stories about David conquering enemy armies. Um, There's a couple chapters of just all the nations that David had defeated. He was completely on a roll. We've talked several times in this study about how David really never had problems with his enemies. If he had problems, it was with the people he loved. He just pretty much just crushed his enemies. So the Bible tells a story after story of David leading his army and crushing his enemies. And then it gets to this one. And it starts with saying, when kings would normally go do this, David broke his rhythm. He broke his pattern. I don't know who recorded this, if there was like a court recorder, you know, or a scribe of some sort that recorded the king's duties, but you can almost hear a little edge of snarky in that. Like somebody was like, when kings would normally do what they're supposed to do, David laid back. Like you can tell um, somebody put a little stress there. And so the first thing I want to talk about is how rhythms are important and broken rhythms are dangerous. Like we have rhythms for a reason. We... We play on this. What's the saying? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? They're, they're playing on, hey, when you come here, you're getting away from the normal. You're, you come here to, to abandon all of your rhythms, all of your norms, all of your, not that every trip to Vegas is bad. I'm just saying that they know that what they're dealing with is, is a lot of people who are coming here to, to get away from the normal rhythms, to get away from the normal patterns, the normal routines, and come down here and just go crazy. And when you go crazy down here, you can go back to your routines and everything will be normal when you get home. Like that, that's what we play on. That we, we do that on purpose. So David has a rhythm. He has something that he does every time. And when that rhythm was broken... He was left vulnerable. Anybody remember the Monica Lewinsky thing? Everybody remember that name? No, of course we all remember that name. I was really into that story when it was unfolding, you know, and Ken Starr was kind of losing his mind to, you know, to get Clinton. And so when the transcript of Monica Lewinsky's testimony came out, I actually read it one night. I downloaded it and and read the whole thing. And and although part of it was incredibly graphic, the part that jumped out at me was uh, the very beginning and it was, it was during one of the government shutdowns. You know, we had that big Republican, you know, Congress, and they were fighting over the budget, and the government got shut down. And so most of the White House staff gets sent home when that happens. And so the White House is being run by interns, mostly, unpaid interns. And when she tells the story, there was nobody in the cook staff, and so they ordered pizza at the White House, and it got delivered to the White House. And so they order pizza, and they're all sitting around in a mostly empty White House, eating pizza and drinking beer and Bill and Monica start flirting 
And so the whole thing that turns into this gigantic drama starts because everything was different. Like, it wasn't the normal, crowded, packed, busy, hustle-bustle White House full of people where something like the president flirting with an intern would have been very difficult to pull off. This is a total broken rhythm. This is shut down White House, you know, 30 people in the whole building ordering pizza and drinking beer. And, and something in that broken rhythm left a vulnerability. And that's what David does. He's in a, in a time when he would normally be surrounded by his army. He would normally be out conquering lands. He's alone on the roof. If he had six, stuck to his rhythm, he wouldn't have gotten into trouble. If you miss this very first verse of the chapter, chapter, it sounds like David just randomly had a bad spin and hit a shoot. I mean, how could David have known Bathsheba would be out there bathing? Wrong place, wrong time. Just an unlucky spin. Except there was a completely other place David was supposed to be. Maybe seeing Bathsheba was a stroke of bad luck, but if David had been leading his men, he wouldn't have had the opportunity to see the woman bathing. Many of our rhythms and patterns aren't just things we have to do to pay bills and get through the day, make the boss happy. Much of the effort and time that it takes just to live is protection for us. You guys remember the old saying, uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop or something like that? Yeah, left with spare times on our hands, most of us would get in a lot of trouble. The busyness it takes to get through life protects us. We don't, hopefully we stay so busy we don't have time to get in trouble. So the story starts with David breaking his rhythm, but he certainly can't blame the whole thing on being at the wrong place at the wrong time because he takes it farther. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was. He was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. He looks over the city and notices a woman and he investigates. And if I know David's personality type, and I I feel like I do, I have a feeling almost every step of the process, David thought he was going to be able to remain morally upright. I mean, I'm, I'm sure when he saw the woman and he sent someone to investigate, I'm sure in his heart he was hoping she was single. I'm sure he was like, man, she, man if she's single, I'm going to invite her over. You know, if she's married, obviously she's off limits. But if she's not... You know, and he comes back and now she's married. He's like, eh. but he can't get her out of his brain. And so he just, I, I can't imagine David knew when he dove into this story where it was going to end. There's no way he thought, oh, here's what I'll do. I'll sleep with her, send her home. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. No, I, I don't think that was ever in his plan. He spotted Bathsheba. And I'm sure he thought he was capable of appreciating her beauty with nothing more. Then he sent his service to find out if she was available. And the report came back and she's not. So he invites her over to dinner, no strings attached. I could be wrong, but based on David's manifesto, where he was so positive he was going to live a righteous life, he was going to live a holy life, he was not going to let this kind of thing happen. I think David just let this situation get out of control. Step by step, he just kept getting drugged further and further down. What started as looking over his city when he was supposed to be leading his army ended in murder who in the world could have predicted that outcome how many scandals follow the same pattern do you think Nixon had any idea how big Watergate could get what started out as a 
Let's just find out what the other side is thinking. Led to cover-ups and destroying of evidence and all kinds of things. Obviously, eventually, impeachment. I think most of the gravest sins in our lives start as small indiscretions. Small bad decisions. That if we had repented of the small mistake, probably wouldn't have gotten out of control. But when we don't repent and confess before long, we can't believe what it's grown into. Years ago, I read St. Augustine's Confessions, and he tells this story of a friend of his who got invited to the Circus Maximus, where they would kill gladiators and you know, let lions in with Christians and all kinds of stuff. And this friend of his had a group of friends who loved the circus, and kept trying to get him to go, kept trying to drag him, and he was appalled by the idea and said no over and over and over again. Finally, with so much pressure, he decided he would go, just sit with his eyes closed, and prove to his friends, I have absolutely no desire to watch this. So he goes. He's sitting there with his head down, hasn't seen a thing. And all of a sudden, there's an exceptionally loud gasp from the crowd. And just on almost a reaction, he looks up and sees a lion disemboweling a gladiator, like ripping the guts out of his gladiator. He said he dropped his head and wanted to vomit, and at the same time knew he wanted to look back and see how it ended. He said, I was simultaneously sickened and, and thrilled. Within a couple of weeks, he was a regular attender and a full addict of the circus, just like everybody else. Never could he have imagined that saying yes to going could have led to that, could have led to him being addicted. He couldn't even imagine it. Made one small, poor decision, and the next thing you knew, he was addicted. We have a tendency to click our tongues at the rabbis of Jesus' day for creating so many extra commands. You know, they, they had piled on commands, but they saw one of their duties, the way they worded it, is to build a fence around the Torah. To put up behaviors to where if you fail in them, you still have not failed Torah. You have time to get up, get back on the right side of the fence, and you won't break Torah. So it's not okay for a married man to be alone in a, woman, alone in a room with another woman. And if you do, you have time to go, totally messed up, I was in a room, you know, nothing bad happened, nothing that breaks Torah. But if you keep that rule, that you don't allow yourself to be alone in the room with another woman, you can't break all the other rules. And so they figured, why put the fence so close that if you mess up and fall over the fence, you've completely offended God and broken the Torah? So even though we sometimes don't like all the extra rules, there is some wisdom If the rabbis had been around in David's day, I think David's story might have gone a little different. Today we seem to ask the question, instead of can we build a fence around the Torah, we tend to to think, just how much garbage can I let in my life before it affects me? Just how much stuff can I allow without falling completely off the wagon? And rather than actually repenting of the junk we let in our lives, we seem to ostracize other people for the junk they let in their lives. I guarantee that David would never have believed in a million years that he would have been capable of cold-blooded murder when this story starts. That would have felt like the farthest thing from his mind. You know, if you had asked him, do you think you're capable of taking a man's wife and killing him? David would have said, no, not a chance. And yet, the cover-up eventually got there. He looked at a woman, that was it. Satan doesn't tempt us with murder. Satan usually doesn't tempt us with the big stuff. 
hey, go do something completely crazy and go rob that bank or, you know, go. He doesn't usually tempt us with that stuff. He tempts us with something small and then he follows it up with a bucket full of self-preservation. Just keep yourself out of trouble. Now just cover this up and, and then it'll be over. Now just make this one lie on top of that and then it'll be over. And that self-preservation just drags us down a spiral. So David breaks the rhythms that keep him safe and then made a couple small mistakes that could have been repented of but weren't. And this leads to a clear and blatant sin. He sleeps with another man's wife, which leads to the cover-up. She had just completed her purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba's pregnancy complicates things. But David imagines that all he has to do is bring Uriah home. Uriah will naturally sleep with his wife and he'll, he'll lie. He'll say, hey, how's the army doing? How's Joab? He'll make it sound like it's a, it's a, a visit to, for intel. And naturally he'll sleep with his wife while he's home and that's it. Problem solved. Sin covered. It's not even a bad cover up. All he has to do is bring Uriah home. Uriah will do the rest. But Uriah doesn't. To get a full picture of that, you kind of got to see David's, kind of the way David operated in the army. This is from 1 Samuel. He said, uh, this is when David and his men were out uh, roaming and they were hungry. So they found a priest and they asked if he had any food. He says, now what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. We don't have any regular bread, the priest said. There's just the holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with any women recently. Don't worry, David replied. I never allow my men to be with women when they are on campaign. And since they stay clean even on ordinary trips, how much more for this one? This is David's like standing rule. When we're on campaign, no women. And so he brings Uriah home on campaign and says, hey, go be with your wife. And Uriah sticks to David's rule. Says, oh no, I can't. The army's out. This is campaign season. This is battle season. We don't do that. So all Uriah is doing is obeying David's rules. No women while you're on campaign. So now David is starting to break his own rules, his own convictions to cover up his sin. Rather than confess his sin, the dominoes start to fall. And once David David realizes how faithful Uriah is, he decides a new approach. He gets Uriah drunk. Feed him a big meal. Give him lots of wine. Surely the soldier will go home. But he doesn't. David has no choice but to send Uriah back Uh, to war carrying his own death notice. David sends a note to Joab to put Uriah in a vulnerable spot where he'll be killed. Joab obeys and just like that, David becomes a murderer. He's killed an innocent and incredibly faithful man to cover up his sins. A couple of things we don't want to miss about this part of the story. First, notice how fake David has to be. His authenticity has gone out the window. He has to he has to fake like this is an intel mission. He has to, you know, fake like this is, he's just spending time with Uriah, eating and drinking. All the while, he's got a second side of himself going. And can you imagine how excruciating this would have been for David, thinking this is so simple. If the man will just sleep with his wife, I'm out of this. And, he, and suddenly he's having to play the conniver. And what's worse is I think this is a man who David would have loved 
normally. This is a David kind of guy, a guy so faithful that when his brothers are on campaign, he won't even... Like, this is David's kind of guy. I think Uriah and David would have been buds. I think they would have truly connected if David hadn't been in this spot where he had to lie. So David's not only losing his authenticity, but he's having to to forego a guy that could have been a great friend. He's missing out on community and connection with who would have been a kindred spirit because he has an agenda. The bottom line is sin isolates us. It always does. Unconfessed sin always leaves us lonely, always leaves us separate. Once we start down the road of being inauthentic to cover up our sin, our capacity to truly connect with another human shrinks. David eats dinner with a man who could have been a true heart's companion. And then he has to, the next day, he makes that guy carry his own death sentence back to war. And while we're reflecting on how sin affects our relationships, notice how things have changed between David and Joab. David, or, uh, Joab follows David's orders to send a, and then sends a messenger back and says this, Report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, Why did you put the troops so close to the city? Didn't you know the shooting? They'd be shooting from the walls and at the bottom. Then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So Joab is now basically able to manipulate David. He's, he's like, go give him the news. He's going to get upset. Just remind him. I've got this little thing over him. No matter how mad he gets, just mention Uriah. And we'll be in the clear. He can't get too mad at us. Because we now know what he's done. So David and Joab's relationship is... Has changed, and if you let the story play out, if you if you go read, every time Joab shows up from this point on, Joab and David's relationship is very tense. It never really does go back. There, there's four or five times from here where you, where Joab is rebuking David, and and, and it feels like this guy. And there's a psalm, I think we're going to read it, maybe in two weeks where. David's like, and it'd be okay if it was my enemies that were treating me this way. This is my best friend, the guy who shared meals with me. You know, this is, this is the one who was close to me. And he never mentions Joab by name, but I, I'm pretty sure that's who he's talking about. And it all starts right here. David's sin has made him both predictable and manipulatable. We're going to spend the next four weeks talking about the impact of this event on David's life. And to be honest, he's never the same again. This is going to play out for a while. David's life changes in this moment. We've, we've been able to kind of target, pinpoint moments in David's life where everything changes. This is one of them. Saul throws the spear and David's kind of charmed childhood is never the same again. Saul is, is killed and David, the people of Israel come to David and ask him to be king. Everything changes in David's life from that point forward. And this is another one. As soon as David commits this sin, we're going to watch. David goes through a depression. And we're going, to, we're going to do three or four different psalms where we get to look at what was going on in David's heart. Everything from extreme suspicion. He got physically ill. Um, there was, we're going to go through it and it's, and it's, it's ugly. I don't, and he never really fully recovers from this moment. Tonight, staying, we're staying in the narrative where... Not going to spend much time in the Psalms. The next four weeks are going to be just Psalms. But this is not the happiest of studies. But it's definitely probably the most human. More happens in this study that 
that fits what goes on in our lives better than anything else. As I talked with Esther about possible stories I can incorporate into this sermon, the number of political scandals, business scandals, unfortunate people we know in our home, on my own story, fits this narrative so perfectly. It was like a grab bag of, of people who have gone through almost this same thing that David went through. And as I said before, you don't even have to work hard to bring the story into today. This is as contemporary as it gets. So how do we respond to this? I have to be honest. I wrote this message and then I paused on the application part because I hate talking about sin. This is not my favorite topic. I'm not great at you know, telling people, stay on the straight and narrow, don't sin, don't do this, don't do that. That's, I, I am not good at that. It's not what comes naturally to me. I believe Jesus is so much bigger than just sin management. Like I, I'm, I get frustrated with how much in Christianity we tend to make the entire Jesus narrative just about sin management. I think it's so much more than that. I find Jesus completely compelling and, and uh, motivating you know, to love and give and serve better. I think he's so much more than just taking care of our sin. But David really blew it. And at the end of the day, David losing God was never really the risk. God had given David kind of an eternal promise that couldn't be broken. David, David's problem after this sin have nothing to do with God being angry with him. I mean, David, you know, David and God have a thing over Bathsheba's son. But when you look at the way this story plays out through the rest of David's life, it had nothing to do with a separation between David and God. It just had to do with David's coping with his own failure. So when we talk about sin, it's not like if you do this, God will be angry. It's that sin has consequences. It really does. When we sin, it affects us. It affects our soul. It hurts us. And not in a way where I'm like, God's going to send you to hell. I, that's, that's not the way I talk about it. But we have to talk about sin because sin causes damage. It hurts the people around us. It hurts us. It destroys lives. So when we talk about sin, please, I'm not telling anybody, you know, if you don't straighten up, you're going to hell. That's never the conversation. The conversation is there are certain things that destroy us. They just do. We have to talk about sin, not because of judgmentalism or I'm holier than thou. I have to talk about sin because sin hurts. Hurts us and the people around us. So the first way I'd love to respond to this message is to recognize and embrace our rhythms. Some people hate their jobs. They feel trapped in a daily grind. But honestly, most of us, if we didn't have to work every day, we'd wind up in crazy trouble. How many professional athletes and rock stars and movie stars who have time on their hands and money and they don't have to work every single day, you know, wind up destroying their lives half the time just because they're bored and can. And half the time, I'd, I'd love to party like that. I just don't have time because I've got to work every day. I mean, work's what's keeping me from destroying my life half the time. That and my wife. She'd kill me. If you don't necessarily love your job or if your job doesn't seem to have meaning or spiritual impact, change the way you look at your work. Look at it as the way God protects you. 
Look at your work as the way God takes care of you, the way God keeps you out of trouble. He keeps you from getting into things you don't need to get into because you have to stay busy. For all you know, your job might be the only thing keeping you from destroying your life. Rhythms and routines are important. I'm not going to say that occasionally breaking your routine and going on vacation and things like that is bad. Those can actually be part of our wider routine, you know, our, our annual routines and stuff, and they're completely healthy and good. But we were created for rhythm and routine. I believe this is the reason God put the Sabbath in. If you take the Sabbath out, it would have just been a, an endless list of days of work that just never end. And the Sabbath turns it into a cycle, turns it into a, a rhythm and a, and a pattern that's healthy for us. We were created for that. I think our spiritual lives need rhythm as well, not just our calendars, but our spiritual lives. Church is a, is a rhythm we need. How many of us have ever kind of fallen out of the habit of going to church and you look back and, man, I, who knew? It's been so long since I've gone. I mean, inertia is a thing. When, we, when we've got spiritual momentum, it makes it easier to gain more spiritual momentum. And when we get busy, if we break our rhythm, we fall out of that stuff. It's amazing how hard it can be to get back in to those rhythms. Those are important. They protect us and take care of us. Other rhythms are important to our spiritual health. Regular prayer times, daily devotions, even our meal prayers. It's, it's a way to bring God into our, into our day on a regular basis. You know, every time we eat, it's just recognizing His presence in that moment. I don't necessarily think some crazy, you know, magic is going to happen that turns the cupcake into a carrot when you eat it because it blessed it to your body. You know, nothing. But it, yeah. But it's a, it's, it is a way to, to bring God into that moment and recognize a few times a day, you know, I'm acknowledging God in my, in my day. I'm creating this pattern and this rhythm that brings Him into my, into my day. These things are important. Rhythms are important. That's why I love the church calendar. You know, it, it just reminds us that this isn't just a straight shot through life. This is the same dates come around again. You know, we find ourselves back in the same place again and we, we realize that we're part of a cycle and part of a rhythm. The second way I'd love to respond to this message is to say we've got to guard our eyes. We've like, we got to watch what we look at, especially today. David went to look at his city just to admire his domain and wound up killing a guy. There's so many innocuous things that we look at and watch because they seem harmless, but they do change us. Obviously, in this era, this, this is pornography, of course, but it's not just that. How many of us surf for and look for things we can't afford or shouldn't afford? And we look at really nice things and we think about the, the great things we'd love to have and, and it just plants seeds of discontentment in us because we're not guarding our eyes. And the next thing you know, we've got no gratitude for what we have because... We're so busy looking at all the things we could have. The things we look at affect us. Esther and me and the kids were watching a sitcom that was hilarious. And it was, it's a, it seemed like a fairly calm TV show, you know, and had some romance in it, some relationships, and it seemed okay. And I was just laughing along with the kids. We were having a ball, and the kids went to bed, and Esther counted how many people in the four or five episodes we watched, had sex out of wedlock. Just She had been counting while we were watching. 
And she was like, our teenagers are watching that. Like, like it's just the normal thing to do. Like, you know, that's just what you do. You hook up, you go to bars, you hook up. Nah, it wasn't the right one. I'll move on, hook up with somebody else. And I was just, I hadn't even looked at it that way. I was laughing at the dialogue and the, the funny stuff going on. And that's what happens. We get sloppy with what we watch, with the things we let into our eyes. And I'm not being legalistic. I've never deigned to tell somebody else what they can look like, look at. What they, I know there are some things I can't look at. Some things just affect me immediately. There are other things that I do look at, and people are like, how can you watch that? And I'm like, I don't see, that one doesn't bother me. You know, Horror movies, I can't do any like anything scary. It just it totally affects me. I know other people that love that spooky scare feeling when they watch a scary movie. I just don't do it well. And, it, and it's not just I can't sleep at night, though I can't sleep at night when I watch scary stuff. It just puts me in a bad place. I can just tell. So I'm not telling somebody else what they can and can't look at. I'm not making rules. I'm just saying be conscious of what you see. Maybe metacognition. Think about what you think about. You know, think about what you're looking and what you're letting into your, into your eyes. Is it edifying? Is it good for you? Is it? Because David did not go up on the roof to kill a guy. He did not go up on the roof to commit murder. He went up on the roof for what seemed like a pretty simple thing. I want to look at my city. I want to admire my domain. I want to look at what I rule. And the next thing you know, he's a murderer. And the final thing I'd love to do is, as we respond to the word tonight, is to um, push confession. I don't want to spend much time on this because we're going to actually do an entire message on repentance and confession in this epic. But we have to learn to confess the little stuff. If David goes down and finds Nathan and, and says, would you pray for me? I was up on the roof and I saw a gal bathing and it really got into my soul and I need to, I need to confess that to somebody, make a sacrifice, do whatever they would have done in that day. But I feel like I did wrong. And I need to confess. I think this whole story stops at that point. Confess early, even if it seems petty. I've gotten into the habit to say, hey, I know this seems small, but I feel like I have to say this. When, when, I, when I blow it, when I, when I catch, when, when I get a conviction in my spirit, and I'm like, you know, I've been doing this, and that's probably not right. A lot of times it's small enough, and I'm like, eh, I'll just stop. I've learned I can't do that. I have to go, usually to my wife, when I can tell I've been building some bad things. And I'll go, I know this is, doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's a big deal to me. I feel like I have to confess this. And I'll, and I'll do it early, as early as I can. Because things spiral. Years ago, I had a colossal failure, and it started with a minor indiscretion. And, if I, and I knew that was wrong, and I thought I would just ignore it. And if I had confessed that at that point, the whole thing would have shut down. I thought that if I had confessed the initial small thing, it was making much ado about nothing. It was, it was blowing things out of proportion. I'd give anything to go back and repent for that minor thing. So I think we need to own our rhythms, recognize our rhythms and how important they are in our lives. Number two, we need to guard our eyes. Move the fence back away from the cliff a little bit. And finally, confess our sins early. Isolation and secrecy are sin's power. That's where sin gets its teeth. Confession breaks that power. It's not a thing we like to talk about anymore. It's not a thing we really know how to talk about anymore, how to, how to make confession. But I think it's a lost art. Luther, they finally got to where they told him he could not come back 
I think at first they set a schedule. You can, you can only come once a week. You cannot. He would confess like every hour. He was so afraid of offending God that, you know, he was just confessing nonstop. And his confessors finally said, dude, do not come back unless it's a big sin. Like, just stop. But I think that that's, I think it's something that's lost today. I think because we know that we're forgiven, because we know if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, we, we don't understand the power of breaking secrecy. We don't understand the power of coming to someone and go, look, I've, I kind of messed up and I need you to pray for me. And when we do that, a lot of times we can stop the, the, the spiral that happens. We can jump off the chute early, I guess. So we own our rhythms, we, we guard our eyes, and we confess early. Let's go to the table.